Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. The word evangelical has taken a bit of a beating in recent months and years. Mark Knoll is a leading church historian who recently retired as professor of history at the University of Notre Dame and has also served as professor of history and theological studies at Wheaton College and has also taught at Regent College in Vancouver. Among many other books, Mark Knoll wrote The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, a very important book that came out in 1994. His latest book, though, is Evangelicals, Who They Have Been, Are Now, and Could Be, with George Marsden and David Bevington. We reviewed the book in the March-April issue of Faith Today. Yes, we know it came out in 2019, but we don't like to be rushed with our book reviews. We thought it would be cool to have a conversation with Mark Knoll about evangelicalism, the movement, and the word. And that's what you're about to hear. I'm Karen Stiller, and I'm joined by my co-editor, Bill Fladeris. So this morning, Mark, I called my 22-year-old daughter, who is very devoted in her faith, served at InterVarsity camps for years, volunteers with Christian campus groups, attends church regularly, and I asked her, would you call yourself an evangelical? And she said, not anymore. I think of the American church and not wanting to be associated with a lot of stuff there. I think that's why most people in my circle wouldn't want to use that term. And I've seen prosperity stuff sneak into those circles. But the biggest thing is not wanting to be associated with Trump supporters, crazy mask ladies, and seven-day creationists, because that's what comes to mind. And she threw in homeschooling, but I edited that out. Um, so what, how is your, what is your response to that? I bet you're not surprised. No, not in the least, uh, particularly for the last uh, several years, although not just the last several years, there is a, a great deal of uh, understandable confusion when just a single term is used, evangelical. Conceptually, there's really not a whole lot of, of uh, disagreement or a whole lot of confusion over what historically the term is designated. It's, it's been a variety of Christian faith that can be traced way back, but it was inspired in 18th century evangelical revivals that emphasize, and this is the David Bevington's famous set of characteristics, emphasize a personal relationship with Christ, conversion usually, uh, emphasizes the uh, a supreme authority of the Bible, emphasizes a uh, the sense that Christ's death on the cross was a key for life now and hereafter, and then was active uh, in faith. But obviously in the political climate of the early 21st century, white evangelical American support or not just the Republican Party, but kind of extreme in the Republican Party has, has colored things. And we live in a media age where political punditry often sets the terms of debate. So it's quite understandable why a North American would be nervous about the term evangelical. Moving outside of North America, however, it's really difficult to avoid the term as at least neutral, in many cases positive. Almost all of the rising numbers of Christian believers in the People's Republic of China, for example, be in some sense evangelical. Much of Sub-Saharan Africa with its great tsunami of Christian growth in the 20th and 21st century would be in some sense evangelical. So yes, the term has been uh, appropriated for political use. It's been in some ways compromised and people have to decide themselves what they want to do with the term, but historically, it does mean something, and maybe in the future, 
it will mean something more strictly religious rather than sociological or political. So, Mark, when you travel or interact with the majority world Christians, for example, do they use the term freely or do they have that Canadian allergic reaction that maybe we get because we're so close to you? Right. And actually, it's a very good question because self, self-identity is different than what historians or sociologists or theologians ascribe to people. I remember some decades ago, I was doing a, a visiting year at Juniata College in Pennsylvania. I had a very earnest young man in class who said that he wanted to talk to me about his own faith as well as the course. So I, of course, enjoyed saying that. And he told me about his life in a Philadelphia church, how active he was in Bible study and evangelism. And then I said, well, would you consider yourself an evangelical? He said, oh, no, no, I'm a Bible believer. <laughs> so, well, historically, and in terms of anything that you would want to write about uh, such a person generically, he's an evangelical. The Southern Baptist Convention for, for many decades, uh, right into the uh, 1970s and 80s, was was filled with people who looked evangelical but would not have used that that term for themselves. Overseas, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, the, the evangelical word is useful to describe in general terms what kind of Christians are involved, but it's not necessarily used all that frequently. The World Evangelical Alliance tabulates about 600 million people in the world who would, generally speaking, be uh, evangelical by the de- definitional use of the term. But of that 600 million, how many call themselves evangelical? That would be a different story altogether. One of the things I really noticed in the book Evangelicals is the discussion that George Marston starts in the very first chapter, and then you come back to it in the very closing chapter. And that's this whole idea that there are so many evangelicals that wouldn't call themselves evangelicals. So there's different metaphors used. Sometimes it's talked about like a mosaic But it really sort of resonated with me where I thought, yeah, it's not really fair to call everybody by one term if they're not actually interacting with each other, if they're sort of running parallel and they're similar to each other, but they're not actually interacting. To give the impression that they're all uniform or unified or one movement is not really fair. It's kind of like an academic term more than, I don't know, a lived on the ground reality in some ways, that the the unity of it. Yes, academic or organizational. I mean, the, the National Association of Evangelicals in the United States, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, coming in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, actually brought together people who, to use your really, uh, I think, shrewd term, were running on parallel tracks, but often had little to do with each other. I'm always glad to go to Regent in Vancouver to take part in their activities and really rejoice in the fact that there's Plymouth Brethren, there, there's Canadian Anglicans, and then there's the Anglican Church in North America people, there's Mennonites of several different varieties, there's Baptists who take part. Well, 60 years ago, they would have all been evangelical in some general sense, but would not have united to support that one particular institution. It would be the same with the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, the National Association of Evangelical. I think what has happened in the, in the very recent past is that the hyper-focus on the American political scene has given the evangelical word a visibility for that in that one domain, and it's kind of overwhelmed all, all other considerations, which I do think it's unfortunate because there is a, a really important history of 
cooperation among people who are willing to be called evangelicals. And in terms of conceiving of the Christian faith, you can actually track some history that, that's really very, very interesting. One awfully interesting matter is in the modern world, I think even more so in Canada and the United States, if you just ask people what they believe and how they act, and you say, well, these are beliefs and actions of evangelicals, it turns out that a really interesting minority of Roman Catholics look like evangelicals. And historically, evangelical basically meant anti-Catholic. Well, how, how, how do you compute? And as you say, academically, maybe, or historically, or conceptually, use of the term makes sense, but to use it in any simple way, without further discrimination, as in the United States, between white and non-white evangelical, just really does a disservice to, in the use of the term, and sows confusion rather than clarity. Yeah, the, the example that really struck me was the example of the black church in the United States, or black majority churches in the United States, right? And again, that sort of running parallel experience or metaphor. Yes, exactly. And, and that, that particular matter is, is very important for even the political sphere. So when people say, well, evangelicals backed Donald Trump 81%, well, no. A certain way of defining white evangelical Christians did. But as uh, Jamar Tisby, who contributed a really fine essay to our book on our African-American church-going loyal Protestants evangelical, well, of course they are, but they don't use that term for themselves mostly. And in political terms, they are usually in the group, the other group in the United States that's very, very reliable in its religious political connections, and that's in voting for the Democratic Party. So. Uh, it, it, to use the term by itself is dangerous. To use the term with some explanation can be fruitful. But we live in a media age where there just isn't time to have explanation. People just don't want to hear, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. You know, watching like recent events unfold in the States and watching people really vocally connecting their faith to their politics has been, you know, well, <laughs> really painful to watch. I can't imagine what it was like to live through. And many times we would look at each other and say, wow, the church is really going to pay a price for this kind of bad reputation it's getting. That That's what it felt like watching. Is that what you feel like living it? Yes, I do. And this has been a, a case where I would call it an extraneous or even a false identification has come from the political right. And other times in modern uh, Western history, the connection has come from the left or it has come from different kinds of nationalism. But as in your daughter's statement, if a religious designation becomes primarily useful as a social or a political designation, then it undercuts the possibility of using that religious designation for its original religious purpose. And so we have today many institutions that are known as evangelical, and if they are known primarily because of associating with a political operation, then th that loses their coherence, that loses their reason for being. So yeah. yes, I regret entirely that there is that kind of identification, sociologically, historically, politically, it's fun, interesting, important to see these kind of connections, but it really does a disservice to the, to the meaning of the word in this case. Historically, the pretty clear meaning is a certain kind of religion 
with a certain kind of attitude toward scripture, certain type of attitude toward Christ, a certain kind of behavior in the world aimed at spreading the good news. So that religious heart, that religious content, in many instances, in many different ways, and in more, the more recent time, as we know, for, for the politics of the moment, has been lost sight of. One of the essays in the book is by Michael Hamilton, and he talks about I'm not an expert on the American scene, but having watched the news for a while and then reading his essay, it really helped make sense for me a little bit of what's going on. He uses two terms. He talks about political moralists and he talks about Christian nationalists. And basically, if I understood what he wrote, he's basically saying there are a lot of people in the United States that kind of call themselves evangelicals, but they're pretty shallowly evangelical. They're primarily rooted in a political stance. And maybe they've watched enough Fox News now and they've decided, oh, maybe I should call myself an evangelical. And they might even check off some of the questions that a surveyor might give them to say, are you an evangelical or not? But really their deepest root is more of a political root and their religious root is kind of almost superficial. Am I understanding that right? And does that resonate with you? Yes, I, I think so. In both cases, the, the moralism and the Christian nationalism, there is a historical story the United States began in the 1770s with the revolution whose leaders claimed that it was ordained and blessed by God in a special way. There were, of course, colonial Americans who said, no, no, that's all wrong. But they, they ended up either going back to Britain or Canada or were silenced. So, so there is a long tradition in American life to think that God is on the side of the Americans. And then the American Civil War in the 1860s, both the Confederates and the Union said the same thing. So while you had a church history, a religious history, where evangelical people did evangelical things, you also had a national history where the idea of God and our side was very important. And then in the 1960s and following, with the secularization of, of, of public life, there, there has been a, a sense of resentment, a sense of loss, some of which I think is quite legitimate, but some of which can be overstated, that what was once a God-blessed, God-ordained, special nation in God's eyes has now lost that precious heritage. So there is a sense of resentment that probably goes against what is the universal meaning of the gospel, but is very understandable in terms of U.S. political history. The moralism is, is a little bit different, but the evangelical portions of the American churches have always been strong on aspects of personal morality. So the great temperance crusade in the 19th century was primarily a Protestant evangelical crusade. The, the, the defense of traditional marriage, the defense of traditional sexuality has not been only Protestant, but Catholic and Mormon and others, but there is that tradition of focusing on personal morality there have, there have been evangelicals who have focused on the corporate dimensions alongside the personal dimensions, but that's not as strong an element as it is, for example, in, in Roman Catholicism. So there's a history of thinking of morality primarily or even exclusively in terms of what I eat, drink, who I marry, don't marry, how I behave sexually, that has been very strong in uh, American history. And obviously in, in the current climate, the evangelical type people no longer control the public space on, on these matters. So yes, several items that Michael Hamilton identified as deep in the history of 
Protestantism in the United States, in my view, were not necessarily a difficulty so long as there was a, a different political climate, but now have been exaggerated and do become a difficulty in the political climate that we have now. For me, I almost feel like if I'm going to understand evangelicalism on the world scene, I have to take a little bit of a refresher course in U.S. history in order to properly uh, understand where different things fit. And instead of just generally making that mistake of saying, well, this must be part of what an evangelical is worldwide, I can say, no, this is part of U.S. history that affects how we see evangelicalism in the United States, but it doesn't necessarily color evangelicalism worldwide. Yeah, definitely the case. And the further you go geographically from the United States, the truer that is. But there's a very nice essay in our book by David Bebbyton who says, well, what's been happening in Britain over the last 20 and 30 years as we've seen the politicization of the white evangelical community in the United States? And he said, well, there might be a slight tendency for British evangelicals to vote the conservative party, but by no means all. And there would be striking examples of exemplary leaders, John Stott would be one, who at least leaned to the left politically and would show that evangelical convictions in the British situation, which would be quite close to the United States in many ways, evangelicalism in that situation does not mean politically what it does in white evangelicalism doesn't mean what it is in the United States. And then if you go to the continent or if you go to Africa or Latin America or China, the American equations just don't work. Uh, there would be some connections. Again, the stress on personal morality would be there, but uh, much of the rest would simply, simply need to be understood in local terms rather than in American terms. And what you say, Mark, about the UK is also mostly true of Canada as well in terms of, you know, voting patterns and so on. In the book, you also write, America's concerns are not the world's concerns, which I remembered as you were speaking. I think that it feels like a shift. I don't know if it's a shift elsewhere in the world, but it feels like a shift for America. Yes, Canadians are in a wonderful position to see this because you live next door to the elephant and even when the elephant's not thinking about you, you could get crushed pretty easily or helped out pretty easily. And because the United States was so dominant in world communication, because it was so dominant in economic areas, the tendency is to quite natural to think that U.S. matters and religion also speak for the entire world. It's just simply not the case, particularly with the just tremendous transformation in world Christianity. 1900, less than 20% of the world's Christian population is outside of North America and Western Europe. Today, almost 80% of the world Christian population is outside of North America and Western Europe. So there certainly are connections between the U.S. and the broader world, but these connections should not dominate the thinking of people who are concerned about the development of Christianity in other parts of our globe. I really appreciate it, what Brian Stiller wrote in the book, actually, to impose this first world debate about the word evangelical on hundreds of millions of Christians worldwide would be worse than a mistake. It would be a new form of first world intellectual colonialism. Good we word there. We were very pleased to have Brian contribute to the book because we, we wanted to make that point, but but for us to make it as Americans would sound artificial, but to have Brian in his position with the World Evangelical Alliance who's traveling everywhere, and he connects with evangelical people, some that would use that term for themselves, some, some that wouldn't. And as he reports, 
the American situation only comes to bear when people are nervous about this identification. It does not usually come to bear on how people are out working out their faith in their local cultures, where sometimes the evangelical type people are, are a very small minority. Sometimes they're cooperating with Muslims against the uh, government in India, for example. The situations around the world are so, so different. And to have an American frame of reference dominate thinking about the religion around the world, much less religion, politics, society, would just be a, a fundamental mistake. One of the purposes of our book, I think, was to try to say, well, look, American situations are important. People are going to have different views of what's happening, but don't try to make the world into an image of the American situation. So can the word be redeemed? Well, that's a question that historians just can't. <laughs> what, what I hope is the case, that whatever controversy there is about the word would not stand in the way of what the word stands for being active, particularly the non-Western world where, where there's so much physical need, geographical need, as, as well as spiritual need. The gospel message can change lives. The gospel message can bring strength into societies. And whatever the name it goes by is much less important than its actual impact. So I myself really don't know about the word evangelical. I am, however, quite confident that what it stands for is going to be fine and is going to have a, uh, of course, a lot of problems, but it's going to have a growing impact throughout the world as a whole. What I was thinking when you were saying that, Mark, is that when, especially when we get past the emphasis on personal morality, maybe not saying that's not important, but into serving community and so on, which we definitely uh, see, I think, more and more in Canada, and I'm sure in the States as evangelicals live into their mission to love their neighbor and maybe in new, ever more practical ways that there's a great heritage there. And so I think there's merit to not tossing out the baby with the bathwater. Right. And the, the history has to be looked at carefully. It certainly is the case that evangelical people, white and black, were at the forefront of the 19th century opposition to slavery. It's also the case that there were strongly evangelical people who supported slavery. You can't just pick and choose parts of the heritage, but the heritage is rich. The heritage in simple, straightforward religious terms deserves to be carried out. And then there are certainly elements of the heritage that offers a way to think about the importance of personal morality and the good of the body politic and structural problems. So in the United States, we face debates over structural racism today. There are things that need to be learned from all sorts of communities, but there's good lessons to be learned from groups that really deserve to be called evangelical in the past that could address this kind of issue as well as many of the other issues that confront us in our day. All right, I have a question to do with Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Of course, your 1994 book that uh, got so much attention. I was just refreshing my memory about it this morning, and I went and checked the Evangelical Christian Publisher nonfiction bestselling list just to see what would be on it. And with very few exceptions, they were mostly self-help books. And I was thinking about your you know, argument in the scandal of the evangelical mind. Do you think things have gotten any better? In our book on evangelicals, George Marsden actually addresses that question quite directly. And he will say, if you look at the bestseller list, you're going to be discouraged. But if you look, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> if you look out more generally, 
there really has been a transformation over the last 40 years. The Society of Christian Philosophers is a couple thousand strong, filled with people of really deeply rooted Christian belief who, are, who have made a difference in academic life. Some would call themselves evangelical. Some are Roman Catholic. Some wouldn't want the term evangelical, but the Trinitarian traditional Christians have made a real impact. In the field of the law, there are evangelical type people, depending on what you want to call them, at, at Emory, at the University of Pennsylvania, at Harvard, at other places who are, who are in a way that was not being done 50 years ago, self-consciously, visibly asking Christian questions about the history of the law, the contemporary outworking of the law. In the history of science, the Creation Museum and things like that get all the press but in the United States and, and reaching around the world, there are institutions like BioLogos. There are individuals like Francis Collins, head of the uh, National Institutes of Health in the United States, who has written about how C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity decisively redirected his life. This is a person who you could call an evangelical, whether he wants to call himself that or not, who's made a real mark showing the dignity of Christian work in modern science. So, George's point, uh, points that others have made is, well, yes, if you look at bestseller lists, if you look at the measures of wide popularity, you're going to say, well, where is a serious evangelical life? If you look in the, some of the academic disciplines, some of the fields where scholarship has developed, you're going to say, well, goodness sakes, this is maybe not an evangelical revival, but it's a renewal of serious Christian work interacting with serious work of all kinds, but it may be 5% or 10% of all those whom a sociologist call evangelical. So sociologists are going to concentrate on the 90%. It's left to academics like George Marsden and David Bevington and myself to say, well, here, here, look at a few of these other people too. So yes, yeah. the scandal of the evangelical mind is probably a misnomer, probably was when the book was written, because evangelical can mean so many different things for so many different people in so many different fields. And in some fields, with some people, the evangelical mind is really doing fine. But the populace at large, it might be a different story. I was just thinking about Fred Clark's piece in the book. It kind of echoes what you were just saying. And it was really turned on a light bulb for me. His point is kind of, we think about evangelicalism, we think that there's this core, you know, the Billy Graham type is the core. And then, yeah, there's this fringe of people who believe in conspiracy theories and stuff like that. But the point of his article is that we've got that backwards, actually, that the intellectual, well-educated leaders are actually a small minority of what is generally considered evangelical, right? Because it's so much bigger because anybody who wants to call themselves an evangelical is basically an evangelical, right? So that is very, very discouraging. And when I first read his essay, I thought, oh, that's so discouraging. But then when you think about it, like you say, and you say, okay, I'm not going to look at percentages, but I'm going to look at individual lives changed, or I'm going to look at advancements in scholarship and things like that. And if you just look at them on their on their own merits, as opposed to trying to put them in the, the big picture and the big picture is too big, <laughs> then, you know, then it's discouraging. So I guess I'm just echoing a little bit what you said, but when I first saw it, I was very discouraged. And the more I think about it, I'm actually encouraged. So I, I appreciate what you said. And I, I hope that our listeners will make that journey themselves. Well, yes. And I think that just, just 
again, what you're illustrating is what I think needs to be done whenever the evangelical word is used. What do you mean by it? Which populations are you thinking about? How are you putting the, the, the word to use? If you want to talk about the state of academic philosophy, well, evangelical type, solidly traditional Christianity is doing decently. If you think about uh, the, the mass media, uh, well, there's even some rays of hope. The, the, the Christian History Institute in, in Pennsylvania has uh, a magazine and a website with popular but responsible Christian content. Now, it, it is like uh, a David against the Goliath of the mass media, but nonetheless, it, it exists. So, yes, it, 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 making that point exactly. Don't use the word in general to talk about specific things. Use the word specifically to talk about specific things. And and be skeptical about other people that are so-called evangelical bestsellers, because sometimes their main common denominator that they're reaching is not fundamentally an evangelical one. They're just using evangelical garb. You know, if their main common denominator is about poverty and how you can achieve the American dream and move up the ladder economically, and you put a few Christian words around that, if we're wise and we're discerning, we'll recognize that that's not the core of evangelicalism, even though it appears in evangelical dress. I think that's exactly right. So, Mark, you're a bit of a rock star in certain circles. And so I think a lot of people would be curious to know how you have been using this COVID time, say, like what you've been reading, how you've been maintaining encourage, <laughs> the state of encouragement, if you have. Well, that is a pressing question for everybody who's in the pandemic region, with almost everybody in the world. I feel privileged being retired, which means that I don't have to, as an active faculty member, battle Zoom and, in some cases, a live classroom at the same time. I've been working for many years on, on a, a book that tries to get at the uh, way in which the Bible was used in American public life from the time of the American Revolution into the early 21st century. And, and in my basement with bookshelves around, I can, I can actually uh, work on that. I do miss, as I think many, almost all Christian people do, uh, the opportunity to worship regularly. Uh, Zoom worship is really deficient, but I've been grateful for it because it's really better th than, than nothing. Uh, my wife and I help out at our church's food pantry a couple times a week when the guests aren't there, so there's not many people around. That's been a good way of, of remembering that the church, which exists to strengthen people in Christ, also exists to do something Christ-like in the neighborhoods where they find themselves. So that, that's, that's been an encouragement. And then, um, even though I'm not a real good technology person, uh, I must admit that the opportunity to do more things, talk to Canadians, without having to go to the airport and make a long trip is, is, is an advantage. So. Uh, at a certain age, I think uh, it, it's a little bit easier to say that this glass that comes about halfway up is both a problem and a blessing. I love that. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.